0: Racing. Green light, they're set to go. Green light's on. Set for a start. Goblins is holding on. Cut glory for Goblins. But it is all heart style, Rico, and he is going to absolutely bolt the Melbourne Cup in. Green light is on for the Green Light On podcast. Yes, hello and welcome to a special deep dive edition on the Greenlight on Premier Racing podcast. It is all about finding out, getting to know people who make the great sport of greyhound racing, in particular here in Victoria Tick. And this next special guest, well, he's done it all when it comes to breeding, owning, racing over the last few years. He's housed some of the uh, the fastest greyhounds in the country. It's going to be a great deep dive with Mr. Paul Westerveld, who's on the line ready for a bit of a chat. Paulie, welcome along, mate.
1: Thanks for having me, James. I really appreciate it. Hey, we
0: want to we want to have a really deep dive with you because you've uh, you've evolved, I reckon, over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, One thing I'm noticing that the guns are evolving too, mate. They're almost popping out of the shirt on the zoom as we have a bit of a.
1: Been doing a bit of exercise and weight. I needed to, I tell
0: you. <laughs> nah, mate, COVID slowed me down, so uh, I'm looking more circular <laughs> than anything else. But your involvement in the sport of greyhound racing, mate, where, where did it begin many, many moons ago?
1: Okay, I was about uh, 12, nearly 13, about year seven. I had a friend I went to school with and... Um, he was just helping out a an older guy in the area that uh, just trained uh, like three or four dogs in his backyard, a guy called Monty Tomblin, And um, he was very successful for a small-time training, won Australian Cups and that sort of thing. Um, lot, lots of feature races, did a lot of travelling around Australia, had had some top liners. Um, and at the time, um, he had a dog called Mets Man and And I was really uh, – I grew up with a mum who's a vet nurse and she was – more into domestic dogs and then um, I was always fascinated by racing so when uh, John started working for this guy I sort of you know my ears pricked up um, watching all the dogs at at the TAB when dad would go in there or or whatever and I was always fascinated by greyhounds and I ended up just doing some part-time work and then I was basically working every day and I just got hooked I was absolutely obsessed I'd be you know cutting out everything in the Herald Sun, all the fields and everything like that. And I started studying all pedigrees and um, I first eventually got my first dog given to me. Uh, I think he was born in about March 90, a dog called Super Mets. Uh, he was a handy dog. Um, Lenny Poor ended up training him for most of his career. And um, yeah, I basically, yeah, just just got hooked like I said. Um, I, got, uh, I bought my first dog shortly after that. Um, and she was a foundation uh, broody for my line, a, a, a girl called Witching Time. Um, I really had no idea what I was doing back then as a trainer. Um, I sort of went off on my own, um, and somehow I flew to win the Wangaratta Cup in '95, and that was my first feature race. It wasn't—they weren't called Group races back then, but I guess it'd be a Group Two if it was um, if it was now. And um, yeah, that was an amazing, uh, amazing effort. I guess for a, for a young kid, I, I think always look back and think how much better she probably would be if uh, someone else had a trained her, or if I trained her now with uh, what you know. But um, yeah, that was my uh, my initial start into the sport, mate.
0: Yeah, you just mentioned a moment ago, uh, witching time. I want to chat about uh, the next line on when it comes to to your line, which was the witch line um, that we've seen. Obviously, so many stars from that moving forward. But I look back in 1995, you went on to breed a greyhound by the name of Wachita. Now, she'd only won five races out of 15. Um, she looked to have ability, but wasn't, you know, a top-line greyhound. You took the punt to to continue on that line. was. I guess what was the reasoning behind that? And it's proven to be successful many years later, but was there a reason why you sort of continued down that path of that line where you're looking at creating a foundation to, to have, I guess, what, what you sort of had in the next 10, 15 years from that line?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, she went to head honcho, witching time, and and the whole litter won from memory. They were all they were all decent, um, and Wichita was probably just about the slowest in the litter uh, of the of the girls. Um, uh, one of her sisters was a really smart smart bitch, witch dance, I think her name was, um, and she was stronger. But Wichita was only a four hundred odd meter dog, um, and for some reason she just threw. Loco. She went to bearability, um, and. There was only a couple in that litter, and uh, we got Starwitch out of that, um, and she was a, a superstar. That 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 dog for me. She um she was my first Group One winner that I'd trained and bred um, and owned, and uh, yeah, that was one of my biggest thrills ever, winning the Hobart Thousand with her um, back many years ago. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it did evolve, that line from Witch Eater. Um, And, you know, your dog's Fabregas. And there's so many now, like, yeah. I mean, all Fabregas' yeah. daughters that are turning out to be sensational in the breeding barn as well as throwing some of the top liners that are, are still racing around today.
0: Did you ever think when you went to breed mm-hmm. that leader? and I guess this gives hope to, to everybody out there who's having a crack at the breeding side of things, who so Doghood won five out of 15. You, you breed her... Um, yeah. Produce the greyhounds that you have from that line, as you mentioned, uh, the likes of Star Witch, who was a, an out and out superstar. She goes on to then produce to Awesome Assassin Path to Power Witch Magic. And as you say, it all traces down now to Fabregas and greyhounds like that. And and we know that Fabregas has now had a bright, you know, stud career. So, did you ever expect all those years ago, back in the early 90s, that, that this would be the end result?
1: No, I had no idea, mate. I mean, I dreamt big. I worked hard. Um, you know, I dedicated my whole life to greyhounds um, by, you know, as soon as I could sort of afford it, buying a, um, a property in a dog area where there was, you know, lots of good trainers around and, you know, so you sort of had people that you could always learn off. I always tried to um, become friends or socialise, whatever, with with people that, that I really looked up to. Um, you know, just direct their brain and and, and just learn. And, and you learn as you go along. And, yeah, you just get better and better at it, I think. Um, just have an open mind and and just have an objective view. And, um, yeah, just don't believe everything you get told and, and really think things through. And, yeah, that's what I did. And, um, yeah, I just – I liked outcross breeding. Um, so normally every third generation or so I'd, I'd go to an outcross and then – Cross them back to uh, an Australian dog, a hard chasing speed dog, and um, that seemed to work pretty well for me. Um, yeah, when I was when I was breeding, um, you know, I had I had another line as well. Obviously, um, I bought into the portrait line from um, my dear old friend Karen League who passed, obviously. Um, I got a bitch off her called uh, Dance Portrait. She won the Laurels for me, WA Oaks, and produced, you know, um, Meticulous, who's a multiple group one winner, Top Gun, Silver Chief, that sort of stuff. Um, So, yeah, and another example of an outcross, um, you know, she was by Bobniak. Um, Yeah, going back to to, um, Brett Lee, you know, and ending up with, you know, Meticulous, Tiesto, um, it's quite a nice litter. I think there's only five in the litter and, um, yeah, it was, most of them could run.
0: And obviously, Meticulous, he meant a lot to you, I guess. Uh, one of the first real superstars that you had and, and now you've got Meticulous Lodge, obviously named in his honour.
1: Yeah, for sure, mate. I think my biggest thing when I was a kid, because reading um, was such a huge part of my life and, and reading stud books and, you know, I got them... F- from way back to the 1940s and that sort of thing. Um, it was such a passion, that, that, that breeding side of it for me, that to I always wanted a stud dog. That was my main thing and, um, you know, that, that I dreamt of. And I've been so fortunate now to be in a position where I can look back and say, you know, I've had a couple that have really, really made it. Um, I've had others that didn't quite make it but still did okay. And, um, you know, I made some decisions that, probably weren't always right with some of my own race dogs um, in retiring them too early. Like if I look back now, I wish I had kept racing meticulous. Um, For example, um, so desperate to get a stud dog I was, but if I, you know, he was, it would have been favorite for the Melbourne cup, pre-race favorite for the Melbourne cup after just winning the top gun. You know, he was going super at Sandown, and um, and I and I retired him at that point And I just look back and think, geez, you know, the Melbourne Cup's the race we all want to win, and and could he have won it? And I did the same thing with Fabregas. You know, he was won eight out of eight at Sandown. Um, he just won um, the national sprint for us, and you know, he 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 was just getting faster and faster and faster. He was just a puppy at that age, and could have won the Melbourne Cup that year or the year after, you know, you sort of, you always look back and think, you know, wish I had have done some of those things differently, but you know what? I've won a lot of good races and the Melbourne Cup's just one that's eluded me. So hopefully yeah. one day I'll win.
0: Keep, keep the dream alive. It's a, it's a great insight. I yeah. get into hindsight too. And I think a lot of people will listen to this and, and hopefully they get into that position one day, and they can go well. Westy, Westy, fifteen years later, regrets doing that. So let's let's keep him going. <laughs> out, back at <in> the <laughs> Melbourne Cup, I want to I want to show you a little bit of audio here of of Fabregas winning the 2012 national sprint heat. Now, the reason I want to show you this, uh, Westy, is I was calling the race. A bit of a young buck, I was yeah. only new to race calling, and uh, at this stage he was just absolutely jet propelled. And here it is here. Racing. Fabregas came out running from the outside, going out a hard Proven in Parlour, but Fabregas straight across to lead over Spiral Ballerina, Hacklebale railing and going forward a little wider out, Dynasty They're followed by Proven in Parlour, Alan Elroy last down the back and Fabregas got away now, four in front of Spiral Ballerina, leader Fabregas going strongly. They're followed by Steel, Hacklebale and a well-back Proven in Parlour with Alan Elroy, but on the corner, Fabregas, he's going to remain unbeaten at headquarters, Sandown Park and win brilliantly. That's when he yeah, just continued he on his winning ways, unbeaten at sand. And I sort of cringe listening to that audio. I don't know why I played it. Paulie. We will
1: get better, mate. You still sounded
0: oh, pretty good. <laughs> I don't know about that. But he went 505-1871, which even even to this day, what is it, 10, 12 years later, um, those sections would still have him in that position. So he, he was one out of the bag. And um, he obviously was a very special dog to you and your family as well. He sure was, mate.
1: I mean, i, I when I look at what he was trialling, because he had so much stud interest after he won that race, um, and I didn't know what to do really for a good six, eight weeks, whatever it was, to decide just to retire him to stud or what. I just wanted to see how many girls he kept getting. Um, and I was trialling him, and he just got faster and faster. There was one day there we uh, gave him just a box-to-box at Sandown, and... Um, and I don't know if the track was overly fast that day and and they were doing box-to-box trials and a few people were trailing 500s into the pen and then onto the arm and I got him out a bit too early and he was a bit too wound up um, and he was carrying on um, as, he, as he was a mad chaser and he, he came out when I tried him, blew the start, ran 5.12 or 13 or something like that and then went 18.63 to the back yeah. and I remember thinking if he had to come out and run his normal, like you just said, 5.05, he's down around the 1850, mid mid-1850s as a 22, 23 month probably old dog by then. Um, you know, and just coming out of winter, he's running those times in the middle of winter. And and as we all know, bombastics and awesome assassins got better with age. He was winning group one's at twenty-two month, months of age against dogs like Glenn Gallin and beating Heston Bales and dogs like that. I just think he would have been frightening what he would have ran as a as a two and a half year old, fully matured dog. Um you know, in summer or whatever on on, on fast tracks. Um, like even that night, he won the, the Hobart 1000. No, it wasn't, sorry, the Hobart 1000, the um, national sprint at Hobart. I mean, he, he ran 25.85 in the worst conditions you could ever race dogs in. Like It was just rain just pouring into their face. Um, and, you know, he's, he was still only a few lengths off the track record then as a puppy. So... I know even Ted Meadows said he reckons he was the fastest dog he'd ever seen go around Hobart at that point. So, How
0: did, how yeah. did you do it, mate? Because uh, you obviously had, as you said, a, a massive passion for the sport and wanting to create these stud dogs, and and you worked hard. But you had so much success in, in a relatively short period of time, uh, good greyhound after good greyhound, Fabregas, Meticulous, Path to Power, we've mentioned them, as well as the females who then went on to produce what was the key, yeah. do you think, to the success? Was it the way you reared them? Was it the the selection of size? What what do you put it down to now in hindsight, looking back, that you think was the most successful thing you did?
1: I don't know, mate, because, like, I look at some of the breeding um, decisions I made. Like, I, I bred from a girl called Witch Spell who was a real 90 who didn't break into. she was about 19 months. Um, and she did break in super fast, but so she should at that age. And... Uh, I put her to Awesome Assassin and um, we got Magic Trance and he, you know, he won three group races and that's not I I wouldn't have bred from that girl now, you know what I mean? And you just think, but I would never have had a dog like Magic Trance. So um, I don't know. I just, I did have a great affiliation with Awesome Assassin. There's no doubt my line clicked to him fantastically, better than Brett Lee and other size like that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, mate. Like, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I believed in lots of handling with puppies. I think that's the most thing. I think greyhounds, um, whether they're race dogs, puppies, whatever they are, they're a confidence animal, and and they need to feel confident. They need confidence in fields, you know. They need confidence with people, um, and the more handling and and that sort of stuff um, you, you do when they're young, I think plays a big part. I used to have all my dogs read at Karen Leeks or or Kenny Virtues, and um, before I had my own property. And you know, I'd be down there every week. I'd walk them over to the trial track to let them watch the lure go around, and, and things like that. Put them in the car, you know, take them for a walk down the road, all that sort of stuff. So when they did go to the breakers and things like that, it wasn't wasn't all new to them. They'd done it all. Then when we got our own property, I you know, I, I had them you know doing already box work, jumping out onto their dinner, or you know. Um, Jumping out of the box on the ring or or whatever it might be, um, they got lots of that sort of handling. Um, they knew how to run. I, I got lots of ks into them. I love rearing them in big paddocks. Um, I had a huge paddock with a with a dam in it, um, which is why I like the way they rear in in New South Wales a lot. Um, for that reason, lots of galloping, um, just like the wheelers would do or hellenins. Um Yeah, and and that's how I tried to rear my dogs like theirs, rear them tough, feed them brilliantly. Like I used to feed them more human consumption beef that I used to mince myself and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, premium dry foods, you know, you just gave them the best, best food, best handling. Um, yeah. And then keep your fingers crossed, I guess. Yeah.
0: Tell you what, it's it's a great insight, mate, because you can clearly see, like you said earlier, you, you are willing to work hard, you're willing to go the extra mile and and the results, and I've, I've always said it on this podcast and to many people, um, a lot of people believe everything goes down to luck. Um, I completely disagree. I think what you put into greyhound racing and rearing and, and, and everything to do with, with racing greyhounds, you'll end up getting back out. If you only go half at it, you'll only get half back out. If you give it 110%, the 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 rate of success i think dramatically improves
1: 100% and look at the same trainers that keep winning all the big mm. races or the same breeders that keep breeding you know all the great great race dogs or rearers you know it's it's not just luck i mean there's i might be a tiny bit about it that is luck for sure but I, I really think when i was getting all those good dogs one after the other they weren't from one bitch you know they were from yeah. lots of different things mm. i was breeding um and rearing and things like that. And uh yeah, I, I just think it was the whole package that that I did um that, that worked so well. And and even when I, you know, won my first group one as a trainer, I I, I had her at um in suburbia, mate. So I, I had her in uh Fernetry Gully in a in a four dog kennel block in the backyard. So I used to walk her around the streets and um I'm talking about Starwich and then um you know, I'd go up to, uh, uh, where is it, near Donvale or something where, yeah. G R B has a slipping track park orchards, yeah. And, uh, you know, I used to double slip her up there every second day and things like that. So, you know, you can do it out of a the backyard. There's no doubt um, I did it, but it is a lot easier. i found that if you train your dogs on your property um, and you can do everything there, the least amount of traveling you do, um, the better like mm. you just go to the races and that's it or to the vets to get the dog checked um you know that's good but I tried to do most of it myself at home but most of the checking on the race dogs um like Fabregas I did, did most of his unless I wasn't sure about something um you know all the all the free galloping was done at home um he was a really hard worker so he he'd just go in the runs and yeah, he's another perfect example of a dog who I trained different to other dogs. He was missing the start a lot as a young dog coming through the fields. And um, you know, you think, oh gee, should I freshen him up or what? Well, I ended up going the opposite trying to cause he had so much like energy as a young dog and he was such a he was so fit. Um, I started working him, put him on the walker in the morning for 15 minutes, working him in the runs for eight hundred meters and then working him in the afternoon, let him run four hundred meters and um and even on race day, I wouldn't change it. And he then and he started boxing beautifully and coming out and doing what he did. So, you know, there's another example of you know how you, you, you train a dog. and You think, what he's run 1,200 meters that day and gone for a 1, 50, you know, uh, 15 minute walk, and uh-huh. and and he's racing at Sandown that night in the in the you know state national championship or whatever, and he comes out and blows them away, and you think, well, you know. Some dogs probably, you know, are better being trained like that and others maybe not. So,
0: Very, very good way to look at it, uh, finding things that, that tick with certain greyhounds. And, and I guess that's the, the key to being a good trainer. Now, on that topic, you were, you were doing well as a trainer and then uh, fast forward a few years and you've decided really to, to give away, I guess, the training side of things and, and really focus on meticulous lodge as a, as a breeding setup. Can you talk us through that process and that change? Yeah, well,
1: it first started, I don't know how many years ago now, probably 12, 15 years ago. Um, like I said, I was always interested in dogs, and I'd watch people like, you know, Jason Thompson, Darren McDonald, these sort of guys, you know, I'd help them do AIs and things like that um, and and vets, um, be around them um, for services and stuff like that because I was fascinated. Um, I ended up getting, Tony Lockett was um great. He was fantastic. He gave me the first two dogs that I stood. I had meticulous. I, I got him back off Jason and Shona and they, he gave me carnage and collide, um, which, you know, for someone like Tony who's you know, very picky with who he gives his dogs to. I was really honored to get, to get those two dogs. And, um, and that started there. And then I, I really liked Dinah Lachlan. I wanted to breed from him myself, uh, and I did. I put him to runway model. A great litter. Um, and when I was speaking to Paul, Paul Wheeler, for the first time, he said, um, "You know, oh, we'll do a sort of a contract thing for two years, I guess, so he'd cover himself in case I was absolutely no good, and he could get <laughs> the dogs out of there." Uh, <laughs> and he said, "But if you're going to take, if you're going to take Diana Lachlan, you've got to take Tirandabale as well." And uh, yeah, no problem, Paul. So um, they came down and. Uh, we went from there and um you know obviously terence the bale was the one that everyone wanted in the end but um paul Paul had sold him uh because he just wasn't getting any bitches um when we first had him but yeah so that's how i started with with paul wheeler and uh and the wheeler family and that's just been the most you know unbelievable affiliation that we've had um you know we've had lots of dogs together and and you know, not like I said before, not all of them have been superstars, but um, they've always offered me their their best dogs, and and for that I'm forever grateful. And you know, you don't know which ones are going to make it necessarily, and until they have, and you know, to get Barsha Bale, who who was you know just an an unbelievable sire, one of the best in his generation, and then probably one further, Fernando Bale. You know, a lot of people say he's the best ever. Is he? I don't know, but I mean, to me, he's definitely the best I've seen in my time for the amount of group group dogs he produces. It's just second to none. No dogs produce that many feature winners, um, you know, the, what he's done. Um, group one wins, you know, it's just incredible. He just keeps throwing them one after the other, you know, half the field in these sort of races, four, five, six dogs in them. Um, it's just crazy. Um, he just keeps Breaking all these records, like I think they're up to one hundred and thirty million wow. his offspring now, and and the frightening thing is, he, he's you know he still hasn't had as many dogs to race as Collision or Barsha Bale or anything you know like that with racing age, and I've got so many vials put away for a rainy day um, that he's going to continue to be you know around the scene for for a long long time yet, mate. I say,
0: and I think the standout thing with Fernando Bale is the fact he was. A super perform greyhound as well like he he we talk about Fernando Bala as the best greyhound of all time as a race dog, and then you sit there now a few years later and you sit there and say, Well, he's probably the best producer of all time, so he, he would have to go down in the history books as the the most perfect rounded greyhound yeah. you could poss- possibly ever have.
1: Oh, 100%, mate. And you think, what he, What would he earn now with million-dollar chases and races like that going now? Like, he was just unbelievable. To win eight group ones and and 11 um, group races in total, I mean, it's like winning a group a Group race every four starts. I mean, what dog does that? It's just mm. ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and to throw, I mean, you know, at the time, a lot of people thought um, Dyna Double One might have been the better producer and people had their ideas and that, but... No, just Fernando was the one, and, and his uh, daughters are, are throwing on now and his sons, and, yeah, he just looks like he's just going to keep reproducing. Paul Wheeler actually did say to me years ago, before obviously before he passed, um, he thought uh, Fernando would be like a Waverly Supreme of broodies, mm-hmm. and um, it looks like he's right. Like, his, his brood bitches are throwing, yeah, one after the other. So many good dogs, and not even his best best daughters are throwing the best ones is yeah it's looking like it's going to be a pretty uh pretty potent cross um in the future
0: what's he like fernando bale you've you've had him at your place for for quite some time what's he like as a dog we we all know what he could do on the racetrack but what's he like at home
1: ah beautiful he's um Oh, he's just my best mate. Like I just, I just love the dog so much. He, he follows me around. I just open his kennel up, and and he just follows me around everywhere I go. And, you know, I brush his teeth even like with an electric toothbrush. Um, you know, twice a week I do that. And, you know, no fuss, cut his nails, no fuss, brushing, no fuss. You know, put his rug on. Everything you do with him, you know, he's just no fuss. He just doesn't doesn't worry about too much. And, the only thing he gets excited for was uh, is um. You know, doing his frozen semen, and and even when you compare him to some other dogs, you know that I collect that are real bulls. You know, he's still, you know, he's still pretty quiet and chilled. You know what I mean? He's just he's excited in his own little way, but his fertility is just oh, second to none. I mean, you know, there's a few tricks I've learned over the years um, in in keeping dogs fertile and and that sort of thing, and there there is a bit of a um, you know bit of skill into into keeping a dog's libido and and semen good um when they're a busy dog and they're getting collected twice a week um you know every week of the year pretty much um but his semen like i had it come out today at you know early 90 percent progressive motile sperm which is you know like there's no other dog. You couldn't be any better than that. It's as good as semen could be, you know, and he's 10, 10, years and one month old. It's just incredible. And I film it all. It'd be good uh, if I could show you actually on, uh, went on a podcast, I'd show you how good it looks. It's just incredible, you know.
0: He is just the perfect specimen though, isn't he? in every possible way, um, he like... If we ever had a statue of a greyhound, it's going to be Fernando Bale, isn't it, to represent the sport? Uh,
1: 100%. Yeah, 100%, mate. I think, yeah, they'll probably do the taxidermy on him and, and he'll just be in a museum one day, like far up, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and for you, sitting back now, looking over the last 20, 30 years involved in the sport, you're a young bloke, mate wanted to get involved in the sport, you helped him out, we hear the story. Yeah. Um, and you look now, your goal was to, to one day have a stud dog, Um, to sit there now and think you were the stud master of Fernando Bale, who, as we've spoken about, is the greatest race dog, potentially the greatest producing dog of all time. How does that make you feel?
1: Yeah, mate, you just feel amazing. Like, I just you feel like you're just living a dream all the time, you know, when, you know, you get asked to do these things and there's always a presentation when he's won Sire of the Year or, you know, Australian Sire of the Year or, or Hall of Fame and and it's just so ongoing, ongoing. And, and to know that you're the person that's sort of responsible for, you know, I've done most of the semen throughout his career and uh, obviously done all the, um, I collect him every time and, um, you know, just look after him. Uh, obviously my, my wife helps me out heaps and, and my mum and dad too, if we go on a holiday. So, you know, they, they're amazing. Um, but yeah, it's just, I don't know, mate, it's just, if I could have dreamt when I was a kid, what would I want to or what would I want to achieve in dogs, it was always to get a stud dog. Now, to get a stud dog that's not only made it, but one of the best of all time, mate, it's, yeah, I, I could die a happy man knowing, you know, if I never got another top stud dog again, um, to know to know that I had Fernando in my kennel for, you know, it's already been seven years nearly. Yeah, it's amazing.
0: You mentioned a couple of tricks to, to keep, these sires going effectively um is it is it feeding is it without giving too much away like is it is it just keeping them keeping them busy or i i guess we yeah. look at it as, as in training greyhounds have their their routines that they go through and we probably don't think as a, as a trainer too much about well once they finish racing and they become a stud dog they're probably still regimented to some extent
1: yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Look, I mean, there's obviously secrets that I keep to myself, but there's, you know, basic things like, um, you know, just fitness, you know, keeping the dogs fit. Fernando goes for a walk twice a day, he's out in the paddock, four times a day, you know, he's always active. I have him out laying out on, a, on his sunbed in the, in the on a nice day, um, you know, feeding fantastic, obviously certain supplements that work well for fertility and, you know, keeping them excited and loving what they do and giving them lots of praise, giving them treats when they've done the right thing, you know, after a collection. All that sort of stuff helps, you know. Um, And then they've got to have, obviously, the the libido too, which you've got to – that's the big thing you've got to keep going because some dogs do get bored, um, you know, twice a week's too much for them and things like that. So you've got to know how to keep that going with a busy dog, because otherwise if you don't meet the quota or you can't meet the demand of the sire, obviously, you know, it's costly for you and the owners. um, And the dog's career is not going to be as great as what it would have been. Uh, But then you've also got to have semen put aside for a rainy day for when the time comes that, that the dog might pass or, you know, he's infertile, um, you know, and a lot of people have been caught out over the years. You know, not having semen put away from their, from their, you know, champion stud dogs. And you know, I think we've got about five five hundred odd um, vials put away. You know, for, for for when that happens with Fernando. So you know, it's pretty amazing that you know he's, he's he's made it as many girls as he has, and then you know we've still got that many left behind us for when he does pass
0: as a success. First- as a successful stud master, uh, you've been willing to to spend to improve what you do, and we get a little bit of a glimpse uh, for those who are seeing this via video, just over your shoulder, you've sort of got the almost like a laboratory-type set up there in the in the room behind yeah. you. Show us my
1: works, but, yeah, things like incubators the keeps everything at body temperature. Um, that's a um, nuclear cannon I got from Denmark to... Gold standard in counting semen. It's amazing, and you just have warm stages and centrifuges and all the micro pipettes which are over there that measure the sperm when you when you're testing it. This is um, this is a fantastic bit of technology. This machine here, it's a um, it uh, just that's that's what prints up actually uh, from the nuclear counter. So it's so precise in in what it gives you. Um, and this is the uh, AndroVision, which. Um, is called CASA, Computer Assisted Semen Analysis. So they're all the things that does. And, you know, it's so it's not just um, my my eye that is analyzing it. So we've got all labeling machines, lots of microscopes, progesterone machines, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, so with, with those sorts of machines, it, it's not just my eye that's, um, you know, doing the analysis on it, which can be subjective obviously, you know, every, person vet or whoever's handling the semen um, when you've got a computer doing it you can't sort of argue with it it's um as long as you prepare it properly and you know what you're doing um yeah and there's lots of things i've learned over the years just you know how much extended to use for how much counts and um you know how to thaw semen out the best what what um thaw media is to use what so what you're thawing it out in and you know, how long to leave it in there and, and what to do with it. There's just so many different things that, that I've learned, um, you know, from other people and, and from just trial and error myself. Um, like I said, the same with training, I always love to learn. And, you know, there's a like a fertility specialist in uh, New South Wales who works at a university, Um who who I ring if I'm not sure about things and, and a professor I ring and they have nothing to do with greyhounds at all, nothing, but they are mammalian fertility specialists and, um you know, I just, you know, probe them about questions and, and every little thing. And, and, you know, she just told me something about six months ago that was something I'd never ever thought of before and and I think it's made a difference, you know, to the semen I'm freezing. Um, you know, now I really do. I think, you know, it's just these little tricks that you that you learn off people that have been doing it a long time or you know a lot more intelligent than I am um but you just learn yeah
0: nothing great. beats nothing beats experience and I tell you what that was most of that stuff you showed me then now uh, well and truly out of my ballpark knowledge but I can I can just see um and just hear in your voice just how passionate you are about about the breeding side of greyhound racing and it's it's been absolutely enormous to to get to know I guess your involvement over the last 20 or 30 years from when you first got involved to, to where you currently are now, probably the last, the last question I have for you, Paul, is have you seen any attributes in a Greyhound, um, whether it be a stud dog, like a Fernando Bale, a Barsha Bale, or, or right back to the the broodies that you had early on in in your career in in Greyhound racing that, that you've said, this is an attribute that, seems to sort of go through and, and and be shown on all of the superstar greyhounds that you've been involved in
1: uh maybe a bit of arrogance maybe a lot of the top dogs and I can tell you right now the good dogs they don't back down they they have that inner confidence and strength that if a dog ever tests them they're not going to back down and I think that they show that in fields Um you know, you can get fairies too, I guess, that act tough, that, that aren't tough on a racetrack. But, but the ones that are really serious, I think, that that just, you just know that, yeah, there's something special about them. They've, they've got it, you know, they've got that arrogance about them. And um, I don't think, yeah, I'd let any dog push them around.
0: <laughs> hey, 30 years in the sport, mate. What's the, the next 30 years hold for Paul Westervelt?
1: Uh, I've, I've thought lately about getting a couple of pups again and because I've got right out of that since my kids are only young and I just wanted to do all the stuff with them. Um, and and I give so much respect to, to trainers that, that do all the hard yards because seriously, those driving hours that, that they do and that commitment is massive and I know what it was like. I did it myself for a long time. Um, and I just, yeah, just wanted to sit back, do stud dogs. And at the moment, I still want to do that. Um, I don't know if my kids are going to follow me in this um, life, lifestyle. Uh, they definitely, uh, my daughter's mad about dogs, but whether she'll do what I do or not is another thing, but I would have loved to have her to take over from me. Um, so I'd probably just hopefully get another top stud dog again. Um, if someone awesome out there um, offered me one that was I thought was really commercial, I'd, I'd go again. Um, and I just like collecting dogs for people now too, just to help them out. So, um, yeah, just doing freezers and, and I do a bit of um, AI work for people with domestics, greyhounds and, and all that sort of stuff. So I really like doing that for people because, um, yeah, it is a passion, mate. And I'm, I'm, Yeah, you can hear it in my voice probably, like you said, but it's just something I just love and I just love learning and I just love evolving and, uh, yeah, it really is my passion. So, yeah, if I can continue to help people out which I love doing too with other people with their stud dogs giving them some help or advice um from experience it's yeah it certainly yeah gives me something too
0: an amazing insight uh Paul it's been I think inspirational in many ways not just for those who are looking at one day becoming a stud master but even just the way you've sort of shown how you've pushed yourself and been willing to work hard and and I, as I said plenty of times on this podcast that the hard work pays off in the long run so Firstly, mate, thanks so much for coming on, uh, having a bit of a deep dive into your uh, involvement in the sport of greyhound racing. And secondly, just keep doing what you're doing. Good luck. And if you do take on a couple of pups, good luck with them and get that Melbourne cup.
1: <laughs> I'd love to, mate. That's the one thing, the one thing I've got to do. <laughs>
0: And that's it for the Deep Dive with Paul Westervelt. Great insight looking back uh, over the last 25 years of a a man who has spent so much time giving everything to Greyhound Racing and had some wonderful success uh, over that quarter of a century as well. I don't reckon it's the last time we've seen his name in a form guide as a trainer as well. That wraps up this Deep Dive. Don't forget, if gambling's becoming a problem for you, you can call Gambler's Help 1-800-858-858 or visit gamblinghelponline.org.au for free online confidential support. Until next time, punters, safe travelling and happy punting.